As we pray together this morning, I'd like to begin our prayer with these words from Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Our Father, we do delight in your word. We delight in studying what it is that you have done down through the pages of history in the lives of your people. And as we study from the lives of Joshua and the people that he led, we know that it is there, the record is there for our instruction. And I pray that you will illuminate our minds, that you will help us to draw strength from your word, and that it will be our guide. It will, be, it will provide the parameters for our lives, and it will be the source of strength as we seek to live for you in these dying days of the second millennium. Father, we just pray that you will uh, glorify yourself here this morning. We know that you are present, and we ask that you will bless in each class and in the service that is concurrent, that your name will be lifted up. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Joshua chapter 23. Joshua 23, beginning at verse 1. Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and he said to them, I am old, advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations, which remain as an inheritance for your tribes, with all the nations which I have cut off, from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. And the Lord your God, he shall thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised. Be very firm then to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. In order that you may not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you are to cling to the Lord your God, as you have done to this day. For the Lord has, <clears throat> has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap to you, and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land, which the Lord your God has given you. 
Joshua had served Moses faithfully for 40 years. And now Joshua has led Israel for 10 years, including the conquest and the settling and the apportioning of the land. He is now nearing the end of his life. He's inspired by God to give this final message, this, this farewell message to his people. And so he summoned the nation to come to him that he might deliver this message. Now, in chapter 23, we're not told where he summoned them, but we would well assume that it was probably at Shiloh because that is where the tabernacle was. And we're not told when, but it, it seems most practical, practically that we're talking about maybe three years after the conquest is over. After re reminding his people that it was God who gave them the victory, who had delivered the land into their hands, he offered the words of exhortation which we find in this passage. We read in verse 6 that God, through Joshua, instructed the leaders of Israel to be very firm. To be very firm. That is, to take the word of God seriously and to obey it implicitly. I think one of the most important statements that you find reinforced all through Scripture is the fact that hearing the Word of God implies obeying the Word of God. What was very interesting is that in this passage we discover that Joshua is telling to Israel that they are not to become a pluralistic society. Now that relates very much to us because we have become a pluralistic society and we are in some cases very proud of that or I should say there are people in this country who are proud of that because in the case here that we're talking about pluralism implied spiritual accommodation and that is of course what it implies to in our society by being pluralistic we accept everything now it's okay, of course, and it's very important that we accept other peoples, other cultures, that, that we are not, uh, you know, kind of narrow-minded in terms of things which have nothing to do with real spiritual uh, factors. But it is not wise for us to be pluralistic as a nation or as a people in the sense of accommodating ourselves to false religion. Now we have to accept that it's here and we cannot persecute it, but we do not accept it as the truth. And that, of course, is what labels evangelical Christians as bigots. Or that's how we get the title bigot, uh, because we do not believe that other ways do lead to eternal life, uh, as does the way of the cross. They were not to make spiritual accommodation with their pagan neighbors. One seemingly small compromise with paganism, or in our case with the world, leads to another small compromise, to another small compromise, and ultimately what we have is the truth replaced by a lie. And that's exactly where we are today in our society. The truth has been replaced by a lie. With the world, the flesh, and the devil arrayed against us personally and arrayed against the church corporately, we cannot afford to compromise the Word of God because the compromising of the Word of God leads to disaster. Joshua is, is saying here very explicitly that only a tenacious grip on God 
through deep faith and strict obedience to his word can save God's people from defeat and from apostasy. We see apostasy in this land. Uh, it's just sweeping over this land in a great wave. Whole denominations are, are, are becoming heretical in, in their compromise of the word of God and, and their, their simply displacement of the word of God and replacing it with the, the common pluralistic attitude in this society that always all paths lead to the same place. What is important here is that uh, Joshua uh, uses the word to cling. He tells them they must cling to the Lord. And the Hebrew word here that is uh, translated cling means to stick to or to follow closely like a shadow. Ever try to get rid of your shadow on a sunny day when you're out in the, you know, in the sunlight? Well, you know, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't get rid of your shadow. And, and so that is how closely we are to stick to God as our shadow clings to us. Because Israel had clung to the Lord very closely for the 10 years leading up to this time throughout the, the conquest and occupation of the land, God had fought for them. And he reminds them that the enemies had been vanquished from Canaan. Of course, not all, as we've already noted. So Israel, therefore, is to love God fervently. And their clinging to him then was not something they did mechanistically, but is something they did out of willing submission and commitment to the person of God himself. They were to love God. And that harkens back, of course, to the Shema, where we're told, Hear, O Israel. And Israel was told that they were to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and flesh. If they fail to love God and to tenaciously cling to him, then Israel would be susceptible to the infection, spiritual infection, that would come from the pagan peoples that lived within them. They would begin to seduce Israel to chase after the gods that they worshipped. We already know that, of course, the Gibeonites were the very first to be allowed to remain in the land. And we go on reading through the passage of the conquest. We discover here was a pocket, there was a pocket, another pocket was here and there throughout the land. And so there were these people who continued to practice their paganism within the land. Now, certainly some of those were converted to the way of Yahweh. But certainly there were those who were not and who remained committed to their pagan ways inside the land. And so they would be a constant source of either irritation or seduction to Israel. And Joshua warns here that if they didn't cling to God and if they didn't love him as they should and obey his word, that what would happen to them is that they would begin to compromise with the paganism that lived within the land, that existed within the land, and they would begin to intermarry with the pagans and thus become, as Paul would say later, unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And inevitably then, their children who would be born to this unequal union would be severely tempted to remain within the grip of the evil one. If that condition persisted, God said, I will abandon my people to reap what they have sown. 
Ultimately, there would be personal and there would be national destruction. And of course, thinking ahead through the, uh, the history of Israel in the later books in the Bible, we know this is exactly what happened. In fact, I'll, in a moment here, turn to a psalm which repeats this. So Joshua gives this warning to Israel. And yet, the warning would not be heeded in the long run. It would be heeded for a short period of time. But as you go into the book of Judges, you discover that the history of Israel is mercurial. You know, they're hot under one of the judges and they go cold as ice, you know. And then God brings another deliverer and then they obey God and they cut down the groves and, and then they fall back into paganism again. And this, of course, is re recounted for us in a kind of a brief summary in Psalm 106. Psalm 106, reading at verse 34. They, that is Israel, did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. I, I trust you see very clearly in verses 37 and 38 the definition of what the idols of Canaan were. They were demons. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Again, um, just, just to reinforce this in our thinking, both in the Old and in the New Testament, it is quite clear that any, I'll just use the word religion, that is not based in the Word of God is demonic. It is of Satan. Any faith, any spiritual practice that is not rooted in the Word of God is demonic. And so when, when, you, when you deal with those or you talk with those who are preaching a gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to know, we need to be reminded of the fact we're dealing with demons here. That is why it's very dangerous to try to talk about spiritual things with somebody of one of these cults or heresies or whatever you want to call it without praying very, very seriously within your heart that God will be there and the demons will be bound. Because these people who come to your door have a demonic attachment. Oh, they don't look like it, of course. You know, demons don't just show up, you know, like this on people's faces or standing by their side, but they're just as real and just as powerfully there. I mean, it's a spiritual warfare. In fact, almost everything we do is spiritual warfare in this world. Sometimes it shows up as misunderstanding even within the church. Some person who, who starts a, a rumor or, or gossips about somebody else, you know, that's a demon taking his, making his way in through there. And sometimes we, we do this, uh, you know, blissfully not even knowing what's going on, and yet that's what it is. We need to be very, very circumspect, understanding that the devil is very sly, and he never goes away very long. Reading on in, in Joshua 
23 here at verse 14. Now behold, today I am going the way of all earth. Now we need to understand when he says today, he doesn't mean that 24-hour period in which he's speaking. He's saying soon. Now behold, soon I am going the way of all, earth, of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. And it shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you when you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. It just came to me as I was again reading that, first, uh, that, that verse 14 where it says it has not, God has not failed to bring any of the good words which he promised you into reality. And, and you stop and you think, but, but the Gibeonites were living in the land. And, and that pagan tribe is over there, and that pagan tribe is over there. And within the borders of Canaan, there are, there are hundreds, even thousands of pagan Canaanites still living. How can they, we say that the, not one good word that the Lord had promised has failed? Because it wasn't God who failed, right? He drove out all of those that they had the faith and commitment to drive out. Those that remained were not because God had failed to drive them out, but because Israel had failed to do what they were to do as God's channel in driving out those pagan people. You know, when we face the issues of life, we are often tempted to say, Oh God, how come you didn't do this thing for me? You know, God never fails. He can't fail. It's not possible for him to fail. These words that Joshua, is, that Joshua spoke to his people are words like that of a father who had lived a rich and full life and he, who longed for his children to have the same experience. Again, just reflecting on Joshua's life. He, he was, in effect, uh, Moses' right-hand man. And he was there when Moses gave his messages to Israel. He was there when Moses stretched the rod out over the Red Sea and it parted. I mean, he stood there beside him and, and was flabbergasted, as was the rest of Israel. And he was the only one on <coughs> Mount Sinai when Moses received the Ten Commandments other than Moses himself. Now, he wasn't on the top where Moses was, but he was on the mountain. And yet nobody else and not even an animal was allowed to touch that mountain while Moses was on the top of it. But Joshua was halfway up the mountain. So Joshua was a man who was greatly blessed. He had had his struggles and he had had his trials. And he had blown it, as we all do. But he wanted his people to know the abundant life as he had known it. And so he reminded his people of the absolute faithfulness of God to his word. He reminded them that in their own hearts they knew that God had never failed to keep one of his promises to the absolute last letter. 
So he used that as a springboard. What they knew in their hearts, he used it as a springboard to sternly admonish them with the words that we read in verse 15. He emphasized that there are two sides to the coin. Just as God had explicitly kept his promise to bless his obedient people, so he would keep his promise to judge his people if they became disobedient. Now, God is a God of mercy, but that doesn't mean that we can have our cake and eat it, so to speak, that we can assume that God will understand while we blithely go on our way of disobedience and ignoring the word of God and not fellowshipping with him and not doing the things that he has specifically stated that we should do. So many people, and I've done it myself, I, you know, will, will cry out, Oh God, I want to know your will. His will is explained to us from Genesis through Revelation in great detail. Now, sometimes, of course, we're asking for a specific thing. Do I buy this car or that car? You know, do I buy this house or that house? Do I marry her or her or him or him? Well, hopefully you don't have to come to that place, but or didn't have to come to that place. But uh, I think that as we walk in obedience to his will, as it is explicit in the word, all these other things fall into place uh, without a great deal of... Uh, what shall we say, sweat on our part. The bottom line was for Israel that if they turned their backs upon God and succumbed to the seduction of the Canaanite peoples living in the land, they would lose the very land that had been promised to them and for which they had fought so hard for seven years simply because they walked in obedience and fought hard to gain the land didn't mean it was permanently theirs if they then turned their back on God. Just as I have emphasized maybe <laughs> ad nauseum in the past year or so, God's promises are contingent upon the faith and obedience of his people. They're always contingent on the faith and obedience of his people. In Hebrews 11:6, we read, without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that seek him. Not those that just say, I belong to him, but those who prove it by seeking him. To them he gives the reward. There are many who say, well, I, I claim God, therefore he ought to pour out his blessings on me. No, no. Many people claim God who don't know God. That's why in Matthew 7, Jesus said the day will come when they'll say, Oh Lord, but we did this and we did that and we did all these things in your name. And he'll say, Depart from me. I never knew you. We are easy to fool. Now, somebody can come up to me and, and talk all the good words of, of faith. And, and as far as I know, they're, they're a brother or sister in Christ. But God knows the heart. God knows the heart. And there are many wolves in sheep's clothing in our day and age. But the more we know the word, the quicker we depict the long ears sticking out, you know, past the sheep's ears and the long snout. Oh, my, my grandmother, what big teeth you have, you know. I'm not referring to my grandmother <laughs> at all, but I'm, I'm just saying, you know. 
that, that sometimes we can be fooled unless we're walking closely with the Lord and His Word is in our hearts and in our minds. The whole thrust of both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that faith must be accompanied by obedience to the Word. It's not possible for us to have faith in God and not be obedient to His Word. It just can't happen. To profess faith without both humility. I mean, it's an oxymoron to talk about a proud Christian. Not that there aren't Christians who are proud, but I mean, you know, in the long run, if this is a condition of the life forever and ever, it's, it's an oxymoron. But to profess faith without both humility and a lifestyle that exhibits the reality of that faith is to have no true faith at all. In James 2.26 we read, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. We demonstrate how much the Word of God has penetrated our hearts and how closely we are clinging to Him by how we serve the body of Christ. How do we serve the body of Christ? Is every time there arises a pain within the body of Christ, is that a pain to us in the sense that, oh no, another problem? Or is it a pain in the sense that we sympathize with the hurt? At the very least, which is, of course, the very most, we need to pray for one another. But in addition to the prayer, wherever God lays it on our heart, we need to reach out to that hurting person in whatever way we are able to do so. And sometimes, of course, that's wearing. And sometimes we feel like that's, that's, you know, interfering with our lifestyle. But sometimes our lifestyle needs to change, if that's what God wants. Well, let's look at Joshua 24. It is, by the way, the last chapter in the book of Joshua, as you may notice. Let me read to you the first portion of this chapter. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Naor, and they served other gods. Then... I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterwards I brought you out. And I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan. And they fought, fought with you. And I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, 
the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you. <laughs> he had to bless you. And I delivered you from his hand. And you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the citizens of Jericho fought against you. And the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Girgashite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or by your bow. And I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, and you lived in them, and you are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. By the way, the hornet there does not refer to the little bug that stings you. It refers to the panic and fear of the Lord. We've already talked about this before and, and showed the definition to you from other passages. It refers to the panic and the fear of the Lord that went before and caused the hearts to melt from within the pagans as they faced Israel. And where it says there that God gave them the victory and it wasn't by their sword and by their bow, it doesn't mean that they didn't use in their, their sword and their bow. It just means that their sword and their bow was ineffective except by the strength of God. This is the second part of Joshua's farewell address. We looked at the first part in chapter 23. Joshua changes venues, actually, for this second part of his farewell address. It takes place on a different occasion in a different location. The location of the first portion of the farewell address in chapter 23, I mentioned to you the scripture does not tell us where that happened. But the most logical assumption was that it occurred at Shiloh because that's where the tabernacle was. And that's where they were accustomed to gathering for everything that had to do with the leadership of Israel. But now we're told in this particular passage that they gathered at Shechem. Now Shechem is north and somewhat west of Shiloh. The question is, why Shechem? Why didn't he just stick with Shiloh? Why did he move? How many days or weeks is it between the two portions of his farewell address? Well, that we can't know, but we probably could assume it wasn't a great deal of time between the two portions. But I think there are some ways that we can answer the question why he moved the venue to Shechem. And I have listed three possibilities there for you on your outline. First, well, all of this is rooted in the fact that Shechem has a powerful historical precedence. Because it was at Shechem where Abraham built the very first altar to God in the promised land. And where God first promised to give the land to Abraham and his descendants. Let's go back to Genesis 12. We were there, I think, in 1993 or something like that. Reading at verse 5. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Marah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. 
So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So this becomes, in effect, the first consecrated site in the land. The first time in which God, I mean, first time that we know of, at least biblically, where God was honored and worshipped in the land of Canaan. Secondly, it was at Shechem where Jacob bought a piece of land and where he also built an altar. Now, was it on the same side of Abraham's altar? Was it near? We don't really know. It doesn't say. But we're talking about a fairly small area, by the way. If you visit the modern site of Shechem today, it's so close to, to the whole, I mean, everything is very small in there. So, you know, it's, it's all within the same tiny area. And we're told that Jacob built an altar to El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. And what is interesting is that Jacob's well is still there and acknowledged at that particular site. And of course it would be two millennia or nearly two millennia after the days of Jacob himself. If we look in the fourth chapter of John, where we have the story of Jesus and the woman of Samaria. In verse 3 of chapter 4, it says, He left Judea and departed again to, into Galilee. And he had to come through Samaria. Now, he didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have followed the route that everybody else did. And, and, and you went over into the Jordan Valley and up the Jordan Valley. Then you looped over into Galilee and you bypassed Samaria because you don't want to trod on this land of all these half-breed pagans, or at least that's the way the Jews viewed them. So he came, but Jesus had to pass through Samaria because he had an appointment there. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied of his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and then the whole scenario of that woman. But as I've highlighted to you before, what is believed to be that very well is clearly demarked today. It's in the lower portion of an unfinished Orthodox church that was built over the site. And it's actually in an underground area. Well, they, they roofed it over. It wasn't originally underground, of course, but they roofed it over. But um, the well of Sychar is right there. I mean, here's Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They're both you know, very, very close. And so we're talking about this, this very site here that was significant to Jacob. So Abraham built an altar. Jacob built an altar. Jacob dug a well. And Joseph is buried there. Thirdly, it was at Shechem where the very beginning of the, at the very beginning of the conquest, Joshua built an altar there. You remember that? Let's go back to the 8th chapter of Joshua for a moment. Joshua 8, verse 30. Then Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, he dug a hole in the mountain and built an altar in there. And he didn't build it on the mountain. He built it at the base of the mountain, at the saddle there, where the Mount Ebal and Gerizim come together. And that is where Shechem is. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, 
which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. Can you get the picture? He's at Shechem. Where is he at Shechem? He's where that altar was built by Joshua. And I think he's standing right smack in front of the stones on which the law had been carved. You know, the whole idea of visual aids didn't originate with CE directors in the 20th century. Visual aids have been around for a long time. And of course, we know Jesus used them <laughs> plentifully. And so can you imagine Joshua standing in front of the stones on which the law has been carved and telling them, in effect, obey these laws. <laughs> see them right here. They're permanently carved for your eyes to see, for your sons and daughters to read. And so I think it was the backdrop and the visual aid for Joshua as he gives his final challenge to his people. Well, what he goes on to say is very, very important Reviewing the historical record very briefly, but as, as I'll emphasize, you, you just keep seeing the word, I did this, I did that, I did the other thing, and it's God speaking. I gave, I brought, I did, I, you know, whatever. And, and, and the, the truth of that passage is that you just see the presence of God in Israel throughout that whole historical record. 